science. Um, we've got uh, a good show lined up for you this week, as you well as you should expect, dear listener. Um, we've got uh, a load of stuff on astronomy, uh, uh, which we'll be coming to in, in just a second. A story about a sheep. Yep. Um, which uh, has been all over the news, but we want to just say a little bit uh, more about it. That's two separate things, isn't it? The astronomy and the sheep, they're not... And the sheep, they're not the same. Okay, it's not a new constellation I didn't know about. No, and uh, sheep have not been discovered (laughs) 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 on an excerpt. That would be a great story, I'd like to see that. The Daily Sport, sheep found on Mars. (laughs) I'd love it, that'd be amazing. (laughs) It's only a matter of time, I suppose. It is. Um, But, uh, so, let's, let's dive dive into um our first story um oh and we've also got a little bit more about uh, ligo uh, which is about gravitational waves so if you uh, have been interested in stories about that we've got a, a nice uh, interview about that that uh, andrew did uh, just uh, very recently mm-hmm. so this story uh, i mean various places carried it it's known as the zombie star um and um it apparently Uh, Well, this is uh, how the BBC started off on their website. It's the astronomical equivalent of a horror film adversary, a star that just wouldn't stay dead. So that's why they're calling it a zombie star. Um, As far as I can understand it, if I've got this right, this is um, a star which um, has gone supernova. Yeah. So it's, it's collapsed under its own weight. And it's then exploded, which is this is typical what they do. It's a massive explosion, gives out lots of radio waves, gravitational waves, as we shall mm-hmm. discover, and uh, very, very lots of light yeah, as well. Absolutely. Um, and then that's it. It just leaves, normally, it leaves just lots yeah. of clouds of gas, doesn't quite, it? Quite. Well, that, that process uh, of exploding releases a lot of energy, and uh, some of that energy is released in the form of light. Yeah. Uh, it will, uh, that light is incredibly bright. As the matter is spread out into space, that that, that light is incredibly bright. It's a big uh, area as the matter from the star spreads out. So it's a large area, and it's incredibly incredibly bright. That usually lasts in a supernova for about 100 days. This star, that explosion, that brightness, lasted for 600 days. Ooh. But we don't think about things in terms of days, but so just to be clear, that's about four months as compared to two years. So normally we would expect them for four years. This one is... As, two years of brightness but during that two-year period the temperature remained the same but the brightness dipped by about 50 percent at various times right almost as if you might think it was the star was uh, exploding then collapsing back in then exploding again then collapsing back in because the amount of energy you would see there would be um the amount of light you would see in that would be fairly consistent because of the brightness of the explosion uh, but the um sorry the the, the the amount of um heat you would see from yeah. it would be would be similar but the um the the energy the brightness would would change as it was going back okay forth. so there's a difference between the brightness yeah and how much heat was coming off yeah yeah which absolutely. is weird yeah. is it is it possible that 
something else was going in front of it because obviously all we can do is point telescopes at it mm. and record what's happening mm. if something that we couldn't quite see was getting in the way I, I, I th- uh, intermittently wouldn't that have the same sort of effect i think it pro- pro- i think it possibly would i don't know i mean this is one of those things um which i, I think is one of the most exciting things in any science but particularly in astronomy which is we don't really know what this is this is a question mark what is causing this to, to, to behave in this way another added um interesting point about this and this is really weird if you go back to through the data they found that in 1954 there was an explosion in exactly the same place oh that is very weird yeah yeah that's that's really peculiar obviously when a star explodes we expect that to be the end of it yeah it could explode and then go back uh, collapse down and become a neutron star but for it to then explode again and then again yeah that that seems very peculiar um well it doesn't seem very peculiar it, it is, is very, very peculiar, peculiar. now yeah. one of the there um, should just be a load of uh, hot gas there now yeah absolutely in, th- in theory yeah if right. it was to behave like every other supernova yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely but one of the um one of the possible solutions for it is that this is a theoretical position nobody has seen one of these before but it, it, it is that it would be a pulsational pair instability supernova that's really just a list of words as far as i'm concerned yeah but what you would expect (laughs) from one of those things is that it would behave in this way it would explode and then come back again and the reason for that um is that it would be violently unstable and the reason for that is if that star was sufficiently hot it could cook up antimatter in its core and that antimatter as we know from watching star trek could cause (laughs) (laughs) could cause all sorts of problems yeah Uh, oh not necessarily problems but it could cause all sorts of peculiarities and this kind of wild and crazy behavior but as i say what a, an amazing discovery this is it is and and what is it we don't know really we know it's an exploding star yeah. we know it see, appears to keep exploding yeah but why we don't know it's almost like the cosmological equivalent of say a, a geezer you oh, know yeah. when you have geezers like in iceland and and uh Yosemite Park and things like that. It just they they fire off, and you know there's a lot of energy comes comes off, and then for a precise amount of time it goes quiet, and then it it goes off again. Mm. I've seen one of these uh, things in in Iceland. That's exactly what it what it brings to mind. Okay. It's as if there's some process going on, which is of course to us at the moment rather mysterious mm. that's producing regular explosions maybe maybe there's some mechanism whereby the hot gas the hot plasma is kind of coalescing again mm. and forming some uh, material again which then explodes and uh, yeah it, i mean it, who it knows just, it uh, i mean over the space of two years it seems really i mean that's quite a short space of time and if you're expecting a star to explode out into matter and then come back into a star that's quite a short space well i have no idea what i'm talking about but i was just i just imagine trying to imagine some because i mean we we know so little about these great great processes yeah i'm not i'm not saying you're not right i'm just saying Mm. that that seems uh i mean it's possible isn't it but yeah but I, i would like to coin the term cosmic geezer (laughs) <laughs> You're the most cosmic geezer I've ever met. <laughs>
Okay. Well, um, let's go. We'll go to. Uh, uh, oh, but before before I leave this story, just to say, anybody's looking for it, it is uh, the object is known as IPTF14HIS, which is just the sort of poetic name astronomers uh, give uh, to these things, and uh, uh, they've been looking at it through from various. Uh, observatories around the world if you're interested in the story lots of people are referring to it as the zombie star so probably that's your easiest route uh, to uh, uh, googling it uh, and to finding it uh, the discovery was made by the intermediate palomar transient factory it is known uh, the wide field camera survey iptf what a fantastic uh, name uh, for a research station but there we go um and uh, just to uh, go to another uh, uh, story, which is uh, an astronomical story, um, uh, this, uh, the, the one that I'm looking at now, this, the write-up about this that I'm looking at now is, um, it says, astronomers discover a giant world, this is how the Guardian put it, a recently discovered giant world lies right on the boundary between being a star and a planet, and that that could... Um, answer some big questions. I mean, when does a star... One, one of the things you learn when you start looking at the sky is that um, uh, not everything that's shiny and bright up there is a star. Not everything up there is burning. Uh, lots of the things that we see... In fact, there was a very good example of that in the early hours of this morning, about 4 o'clock this morning. Uh, Jupiter oh, yes. and Venus were very bright and very close together in the sky. Did you? I wondered whether you'd been up to see. I, it. I wasn't up to see that. No, I. Um, I to be right, I, I, this, this is a silly reason, but it's the truth. I was. I went to see Paddington Two yesterday ah, with my daughter, and it yes. gave her nightmares. Oh no! So I, I, I would have been up otherwise, but I had to sort of placate her quite a lot in the night. Do so. you recommend Paddington Two? It's amazing. Yeah, but, but not if you're. Please don't have nightmares. <laughs> right, not if you're not if you're little. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Was Hugh Grant good? I've heard he's very good in it. Uh, yes. Oh, he here the good. bear acted brilliantly. Yes, yes. Well, it, it's uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal film. But it's, it's it's slightly off topic, but uh, yeah. And, and what I would say is, uh, yeah, if you don't like the thought of people going to prison for something they've not done, oh. then uh, don't don't go and see it. Mm, very topical. Um, there, there's um, I, I, I saw Hugh Grant. Sorry, this is a terrible d- a digression <laughs> from a digression. But Hugh, I saw Hugh Grant uh, the other day talking about this, and he said his father, his very elderly father, went to see it. The premiere. And he turned to Hugh Grant and he said, um, Is that a a real bear, Hugh? (laughs) He said, Dad, it talks. That's amazing. That's a very similar conversation to that I had with Lyra, actually, um, where she she was first of all upset that Paddington had gone to prison for something, that's a spoiler, yeah. uh, for something he hadn't done. Poor but Paddington. then she was upset because she realised she was probably never going to meet Paddington, either because he wasn't a real bear or yeah. because he was so famous now that she wouldn't be able to, yeah. to meet him. Yeah, well, there's the other thing, you know, yeah. they, these, they, these celebrities just withdraw, don't they? <laughs> anyway, on my ramblings, I was, I was about to say, of course, that although everything and the the sky glitters or we see it because it glitters um a lot of those objects you see in the sky are planets uh jupiter venus were very close together this morning but they're really bright and people think they're stars don't they yes Uh, they just Uh, they got very close together but a lot of people uh, uh without you know knowing anything about the night sky would think that they were stars but they move around whereas the stars uh, mm. uh, 
tend not to. It's almost as if they're fixed onto a screen that moves, whereas the planets, they wander all over the place. And their name means wanderer. So here's the question. Hmm. What is the relationship between a planet and a star? In other words, can a planet become a star? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, what I can, just as another aside, actually, the, Venus being a, a very bright planet in the in the night sky, um, if you see an incredibly bright star, uh, it's not a star. It's mo- more than likely it's Venus, and actually, Venus is the reason for most UFO sightings. Is that right? Yeah, even police have reported seeing a UFO on the horizon when when Venus is low on the horizon. Yeah, people think it's uh, a, a UFO because it's so incredibly bright, wow. uh, and actually. Yeah, knowing a little bit about the night sky can save you from being scared about fictitious yeah, aliens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is good. Anyway, uh, yes, there is this giant planet that's been found. Uh, when I say giant, Jupiter is the biggest planet in our solar system. Yeah. That is 317 times bigger than Earth. Whoa. So you could fit 317 Jupiters, uh, Earths in Jupiter. Yeah. This planet... Hang on a second. I've got that completely wrong. <laughs> so there are... Uh, Jupiter is 13 times the size of Earth. Well, I've, I've said that completely. No, the no, planet... Hang on. The planet, they... I, I, I think this is it. The planet is around 13 times bigger than Jupiter. That's right. And Jupiter is the 317 times bigger than Earth. That's it. So this planet is... That we're talking it's about. It's all those threes planet. and ones that Quite. have confused you, yeah. yeah. Th- this new planet that's been found, it's not new, but it's new to us, has been found, is 4,000 yeah. yeah. times bigger than our planet. Yeah, that's Four, big. Yeah, that's really, yeah. really big. Take you a long time to fly around it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the, the criteria for a planet, I always thought it was just that they wandered. Yeah. But that's, that's complicated. Yeah. Because there are stars that wander. Yeah. So that doesn't help you really, does it? No. So there is one of the one of the criteria for a, for something being a planet is that it 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 has fusion in it. it so it it can um, hydrogen in its core. Do you mean a star now? Yes. Yeah, sorry, I can't. I'm so <laughs> confused by all this. I do mean a star. Yeah. I know you're in a little bit of pain at the moment. Oh, yeah. It's these painkillers you've it been is. taking. Yeah, it is. That's what it is. Yeah. So a star has got uh, is is basically an enormous fusion reactor yes like a a hydrogen bomb yeah effectively going off yeah Yeah. and um it what so i think two main criteria of a cell would be that that it has that it's a hydrogen uh fusion reactor is uh, in a sense uh and the other is that it shines that it that that it, it is making sufficient energy to shine uh, and be a bright thing in the night sky. There is something called a brown dwarf which sits um, somewhere along the spectrum between a planet and a star, really. Uh, it is definitely a star. brown dwarf is a star, but it sits closer to a planet on the spectrum because while it does have that hydrogen fusion going on, it doesn't shine particularly right. always so very, very relatively cool is yeah. that why yeah, yeah 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 absolutely or the, the the anyway this planet this planet does is sufficiently massive for it to have some sort of hydrogen fusion going on in it um but so it can't be a planet but it doesn't shine in any sense in that it isn't even a brown st- a brown dwarf star so what is it i don't know yeah, nobody knows really what it is. Yeah. And, you know, so, sometimes I, I don't worry too much. I don't, no, clearly at no, the no, start no. of this, I've been getting mixed up between plants and stuff. But I don't really mind. Yeah, which wh- yeah, what yeah. it is because it's yeah, yeah. it's just 
that's just putting it in a box, isn't it? Whereas, it's true. Yeah, it, it turns. It's out like, isn't it a bit like finding a um, uh, say? Say you were a child and you found a pond with lots of little sea bugs in it, mm. and you and you know a, 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 a shore, a pool on the shore, and you were sorting bugs. You know, as children do this kind of thing. Yeah. And, and and actually, the joy of the discovery is finding something that doesn't fit your category. It's not a crab. Right. It's not a shrimp. It's not a fish. Absolutely. It's, some, it's something else. You know, it's mm. not an insect. Not not something that resembles an insect. It's something else again. Mm. And that is, you're right. I think that it, it is the excitement of it, mm. and it, it shouldn't bother us that it doesn't fit a category because it's opening up a, a whole new uh, door Quite. to something something new. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And it's, well, it's like Pluto, isn't it? I mean, who cares if Pluto a planet or not it's an amazing body in space yeah, yeah. which we can study and it's, yeah, it's yeah. incredibly beautiful yeah it's got so much science to tell us why does it matter if it's a, called a planet or not I don't yeah know. and of course first discovered by walt disney <laughs> <laughs> or have i got that wrong? Yeah, yeah i think you've got, yeah, that, got that wrong. Bit confusing. Um, do we know where this giant um star is um the answer sorry this giant planet is uh we do I say we do. I don't. Can they, I? They do. No, well, no. I was just uh, asking you because I couldn't see it in the uh, in the story that I was looking at. But I do know its name. Oh yeah, let's its do name, the name is Ogle like Ogle twenty sixteen BLG one one nine zero. How romantic oh, is that? Beautiful. Well, and, if you want uh, to know uh, where to look that up in the sky um i would google it and you can all, all remember exactly what that name was and I, you, if you can hear the tapping away at the computer that isn't me googling where it is it isn't no no it, it, well it is actually but um i can't find it okay <laughs> well it's an interesting story the, the story uh, was published by the yh ryu by by somebody called yh ryu of the korea astronomy and space science institute and uh, their colleagues uh, and the the as we said the astronomers calculate the planet's going to be around 13 times the mass of jupiter which makes it humongous we need some peaceful music we do after that can i tell you where it is first though oh I yeah i do out. okay it's twenty-two thousand light years from earth in the constellation of sagittarius my goodness you're listening to love and science on bcfm radio so uh, one of the things we've been talking about over the last few months, because it's big in science, is LIGO, uh, which is uh, essentially the project for uh, looking for gravitational waves. Albert Einstein himself uh, predicted them 100 years ago, and uh, we um, have uh, found them. And uh, it's a whole new way of looking at the universe. And uh, we keep bumping into people, or rather Andrew does, <laughs> <laughs> who knows about them. So you met uh, 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 an eminent fellow in this, uh, in this field, fellow of the Royal Society, uh, Professor James Howe. I think he's professor in Glasgow, is he not? Yeah. And also on the LIGO team. Yeah. Um, d- w- can you just tell us what you asked him? Just set this up for us. Okay, well, um, yeah, he was... Um he was there at the launch of this uh, well not the launch but the announcement of this this amazing discovery they've made of two uh, two colliding neutron stars and the gravitational waves that came from them and I met Professor James Huff OBE uh, oh Huff him. sorry I don't know I don't oh, right. I, you might be right I'm pronouncing <laughs> um, and uh, we didn't chat surnames to be honest we talked about science and um, <laughs> I, I began uh, by asking him um, what it was and what it meant to him 
Well, I've been doing this for 46 years, looking for gravitational waves, with the idea that eventually we would be able to actually contribute, you know, to bring new knowledge into in, in astrophysics, and at last we've managed to do so. So it's, it, I find it quite amazing that with one event in particular, this binary neutron star, just what the impact has been right across astronomy, both from, you know, from uh, the first, the first, well, real observation of a kilonova, on the other hand, to the fact that soon we'll be able to measure Hubble's constant, you know, in a totally model-independent way and hopefully in a few years' time to have enough accuracy to be able to differentiate between the two kind of rival values from Planck and from, uh, you know, the standard... uh, the ladder way of doing things so I, I think it's just amazing how much has come out but then of course we didn't expect to see this I may say, the binary neutron stars as early as this because all the predictions had been earlier that it would need to wait quite a number of years but then we didn't expect to see the initial black holes either and that was a huge surprise to see the binary black holes yeah. My well initially I started off I suppose working on the laser side of laser, of the laser interferometers, but then moved on to the suspension side and did a lot of the initial work on making the uh, the few silica suspensions that really made the detection possible in advanced LIGO, allowed the low frequency performance to be obtained. So I, for many years, I led the group that was doing that. Um, I no longer lead it because I handed the group over to Sheila Rowan, you know, who uh, when I reached or just before I reached the tiring age. But, I mean, despite that, I still work on it, you know, because I still have a research contract that lets me continue. I just don't lead the group anymore, but I still contribute to the physics. And that area still interests me a great deal. How to get the fundamental noise in the suspension systems reduced to a level that allows the sensitivity overall of the detectors to be improved. And so it's that kind of work that's, that's led to this discovery, isn't it? Yes, that's right, to a large extent. Not just that, I mean, our German colleagues... Uh, so the work, a lot of the work came from Geo 600, the UK German detector, where we pioneered our German colleagues, put, brought in new lasers, used new lasers, they, they, they tested the ideas of thermal compensation, the signal recycling and signal extraction, resonance signal ex- or resonance sideband extraction, and and the silica suspensions, and these are all the things that we moved into advanced LIGO from the from from the UK German Geo detector, and it took a number of these things, including of course also the beautiful um, is- seismic isolation systems that were developed at Stanford University, you know, to allow the advanced LIGO to make the improvements it did. All these things together made the detection possible but the few silica suspensions have a special place in that A couple of years ago when the first gravitational waves were discovered, everybody was talking about a new era of astronomy I feel Mm -hmm. like we're living in it now Yeah, yeah. Um, Is this the first of uh, one a year? Is the first of many? Oh I think this is the first of many and of course if we take the black holes for example, there's so much you can do with the black hole observations once you have enough of them but you need to have enough to be able to, to you know, to, 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 to get an average of, you know to get a feeling of what's the spin etc. like of the, of the individual black holes before they merge because that gives you more information about basic cosmology and in the end, well how the black holes are formed and this may tell us more about galaxies 
physics of formation, for example. So there's a lot of astrophysics to be done. Once, but we need more measurements, so we need more observations. And I mean, even with the present detectors, I mean, it's likely that within, I'd have thought, within a few years, we'll be seeing maybe a black hole, a, you know, coalescence a week or something like that. Um, and then, of course, if we, that is what we want to do is to, is to build more sensitive detectors still, and we have a plan to do that, you know, to, to, to upgrade the LIGO detectors. Okay. Oh, right, okay. And to give us more sensitivity, which means we should be getting many black hole events, you know, per, per week, and yeah. uh, maybe we should be seeing neutron star events too, you know, yeah. every 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 week or so or something like that. Really, every so week. So that could, I think, with the next stage, once not maybe maybe not quite with this uh, with this present set of detectors. I mean, well, we could, of course, it's possible we might get as much as one a week, but I would have guessed that would be very lucky. Mm. But certainly once we get to the next stage where we're, we upgrade by a, a small factor the sensitivities, we oh, should improve the rates. Well, that's very hard to tell just now because on both sides, well, in the US, are hoping to raise money for that, and in the UK, we are also just now hoping to raise money to, to contribute to that, and that's very much an ongoing process. But we will be writing the proposal for that uh, over the next... In fact, let, we'll start writing shortly after Christmas, I think, a proposal for money... We've already put in a statement of intent to our funding agency, STFC, and have been encouraged to write a proposal. So, well, I, I assume that this kind of collaborative result doesn't help, doesn't harm in that. Oh, I'm sure it helps, yes. No, I, I guess, you see, we might hope maybe by 2020, 2021 to see a, a, you know, a, an upgrade, maybe even, maybe even before, slightly before that, to the LIGO detectors, but we've just got to wait and see. What of the other aspects of astronomy have you got, have kind of sparked your interest particularly on this well cosmology has always interested me how fast is the universe expanding you know Hubble's constant and of course the whole idea of dark energy does dark energy exist or not and I mean maybe we'll get a handle on that the further out we can see you know to see what the expansion rate does for you know once uh, one can see much further out into the universe you know using uh, our, our methods rather than using supernovae as a kind of standard science so I mean we may uh, that would be very very exciting. I find that very interesting because, uh, well, I suppose when I started doing this kind of work, I mean, there was a great controversy about whether the universe was was expanding or was it static, you know, and the big arguments between, you know, well, some of the cosmologists of that time, you know, like Fred Hoyle and Jeffy Burbridge, etc., that's a lot of arguments and you know that was a very exciting time because of that now we're seeing of course we're getting into a situation where we're going to be really able to 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 properly probe these uh you know probe these sort of questions um particularly with the gravitational waves as we get more sensitivity in detectors and that is uh, professor james or jim now i say how you say huff <laughs> but who knows what he says uh, whatever we should know his name because he he is a, a, a eminent member of the uh, ligo 
uh, team and uh, has been uh, for a great many years, 40 years, mm. um, studying these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as I said in the introduction to that, uh, Albert Einstein predicted this about 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's amazing today where we can, we can use these waves to yeah. see what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, being, we're being slightly silly about his surname, but uh, the, the good professor there is a professor for a very good reason. Um, one of the reasons is that he um, was instrumental in, as you just heard, in making the technology to actually discover these gravitational waves, to actually be able to detect them. So it was a, yeah, a real pleasure to be able to speak to him. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll t- tell you something else about him. Um, so he was in the 2013 birthday honours list for service to science. Mm. Um, but he also received widespread media coverage in 2004 because he placed a bet against all the odds of detecting gravitational waves <laughs> before 2010. The original odds were set at 500 to 1, wow. so he put a bet on it. But following huge interest, the betting company were forced to cut the odds to 6 to 1. Because <laughs> somebody could really have cleaned up there, couldn't yeah, they? Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. A tenner at 500 to 1 would have done you very nicely, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. 5,000 quid uh, on, on that one. Um, and um, he was also opposed to the uh, Scottish in- independence because he said it would do, uh, they would, it would have detrimental consequences for the health of the Scottish science base. So there you are. He's uh, he's mixed it up there, yeah. Professor Professor Jim Hu How. Uh, <laughs> uh, there he is. But, th- but th- uh, that that was a great interview, and uh, we thank him for it. Now, one of the stories. Uh, this is not an astronomical story uh, in the news. It, it's, but it's been all over the place. It's this story that sheep can recognise um, human faces. I don't know if you've if you've seen this. I, yeah, I did see it. I, and, I know um, they can recognise Barack Obama. I noticed. Yes. So what? They, so what they did? Well, the, the sheep had a training session. <laughs> this is how they they described it, um, and uh, they were shown faces. They they were taught to recognise the faces of uh, famous people. They chose uh, for no particular reason uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. Emma Watson yeah. uh, uh, from uh, Harry Potter, yes, yeah. um, uh, former US uh, President Barack Obama, and BBC newsreader Fiona Bruce. Sorry. The sheep chose these people. No, okay. no, the researchers <laughs> chose these people. Okay, and the sheep had a training session mm-hmm. where they had to um, uh, learn these faces. I, I mean, how they do this, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, they gave them a test where they had to see whether the sheep could recognise somebody from a photograph. Mm. Uh, and uh, so they they were given, say, a photograph of somebody who wasn't famous who had a similar look to the person who was. And the sheep chose the famous person that they learned about, and uh, when the, when they did, they they touched. I think they moved forward to touch the photograph and uh, the one that they chose, and they would get a reward. Mm. So you know, there you go. And of course, that's as far as most media stories got. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting bit, is uh, because it? That, because from a media... This is really interesting when yeah. it comes to talking about science, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to make a slight digression here before okay. I come back to this. Um, one of my favourite programmes, Have I Got News For You, mm-hmm. uh, usually makes me chuckle, occasionally makes me very angry. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they, they had a, um, a thing a couple of weeks back where they said scientists have invented um, a way of causing um, a hamburger to float in the air 
and it was a t- very turned out to be a very small hamburger and, and basically what it was doing it was a sonic thing where they were causing um air um the airwaves to vibrate Okay. with different sounds uh, it levitated this small hamburger separated the constituent parts you see and of course the story as far as anybody looking at that would be concerned was scientists have been spending their time making hamburgers levitate yeah, you know? yeah. but of course there's a much more serious physical uh, physical sciences purpose behind that you yes. know can you actually apply this to different substances and cause cause substance to separate out and all kinds of applications could come from that with the sheep the interesting thing uh, uh, about this story is that actually um what they were trying to do the researchers who were cambridge uh, researchers working on this the lead uh, researcher somebody called professor jenny morton professor of neurobiology at uh, newnham college in, in cambridge um she's leading a team and what what they're looking at is this terrible disease neurological genetic disease which has a fatal inc- uh, out, um, fatal outcome which is called huntington's disease which of course some people will will know about uh, it's hereditary uh, it has no known cure mm-hmm. and it's utterly uh, devastating to people um it has very very limited treatment and uh, so what they've been doing is they've been doing um various uh, genetic studies and um of course as very often they work with mice and rats and and, and creatures like that to give them some kind of idea of what's going on in the brain uh, when when this disease when when the genes for this disease show themselves but they wanted something bigger which yeah. began to approach something human so they thought well sheep but in order to do cognitive tests on sheep to check how their memory is affected and everything you have to know what a normal sheep does yeah, <laughs> has yeah. a normal you can't just go oh well, sheep are stupid which is what lots of people think mm. um uh, you, you actually need to be able to measure what can a sheep remember how long what kinds of things can it remember images in 3d mm. and all that it turns out they're pretty smart yeah uh, uh, and uh, when it comes to this they they uh, recognize other sheep at quite a distance and um uh, they can actually uh, recognized faces in fact uh, they're so good at this um that it's thought that um their uh, skills at recognizing faces uh, rival those of human beings so it's very similar to us and dogs dogs are very good at it yeah. as well yeah so uh, would you say that the sheep were, were sort of showing individual skills and not not just sort of following other <laughs> <laughs> i know where you're going with this <laughs> yeah just just a lot of sheep <laughs> well that's an interesting question isn't it because yeah. one sheep may vary uh, from another but they know they know sheep make friends that they have uh, you know if, and you, we, we just see a flock of sheep but they recognize their friends across the field and yeah. all that kind of thing it's quite amazing and, and there are some people who say well, well actually we have bred sheep to be stu- you know quotes stupid okay we have de-skilled them yeah. uh, over centuries mm. of, of farming them whereas in fact you know wild sheep are pretty smart yeah. cookies I do i do, uh, just as a aside have you been watching blue planet 2 yes i i've 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 dipped in and in and out of it okay. but uh, i i i get transfixed yeah. uh, the minute i start watching it yeah i did i was just thinking about the false killer whales and uh, and the dolphins did you see that sequence yes i did yeah so it, there's wild animals which you might say that sheep and cows and cattle it, that that 
whales and dolphins are similar sort of animals in the sea, if you see what I mean. Yeah. If they'd been left to to be their wild things. In yeah. Way. And you can see uh, in that opening episode of, uh, of Blue Planet 2, um, with uh, the false killer whales hearing the dolphins at, at some distance and then clearly making a beeline for them. They hear them, ch- the dolphins chatting to each other, make a beeline for them. And you would think that these killer whales false killer whales would be going there to hunt them when yeah. they get there the dolphins turn around and the calls start changing and it's almost exactly like the dolphin the the killer whales have gone so gone over to the the, the dolphins and they've gone all right mate how you doing yes yeah, should yes we go? they're greetings yeah. aren't they and yeah. then uh, should we go and hunt together yeah okay let's yeah. do this and yeah. then they go off all together as, a, as two packs and yes that kind of kinship friendship between two different yeah. species in the, yeah. in the in the oceans of course yes we, we should be seeing this kind of intelligence in animals uh, on Earth absolutely uh, i think the beauty of programs l- like that as well is it really does uh, increase our respect for animals yes um because we can actually see instead of just thinking about you know here are sea creatures you know here's a load of sheep <laughs> here's this is that what, the, what what programs like that do in this case looking at uh, at the uh, at sea uh, creatures it shows us the the extraordinary variety and complexity of their behavior and their social interactions and the skills that they they have uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago they were showing a um uh, a parrot fish which is a very beautiful fish which likes some um, coral reefs um basically it uses a particular rock it always mm. uses the same rock and um it cracks open shells yeah. on it yeah Amazing. Uh, using tools uh, you, and it's you it's a, another example of an animal using tools we're finding them all the time yeah yeah it used to be i can remember being told at school we're the only we are the only creature that uses tools yeah you know? it, it, all of those things all of the things that separate us from from the uh, animal kingdom are being torn down really aren't they yeah the more we learn about animals i mean like one of the things you might think would be uh, peculiar to to humans would be uh, fashion but there are apes that have been observed where the, the 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 female apes in the in in the group suddenly started wearing a piece of straw in one ear yeah and they few of them started wearing a piece of straw in one ear the others started copying it and then they wore it for a season <laughs> and then the next year they didn't do it again there's no purpose for it it was purely decoration and if that isn't fashion i don't know what is that is extraordinary isn't yeah. it one of my favorite stories uh, is about how crows um in uh, guinea new guinea have um tools so they use sticks to get insects yeah out of um, bark and on the uh, west side of the island they have one notch they use a stick which they make a notch in in the middle of the island they have a stick with three notches and at the far end of the east end of the island they have a stick with two notches Uh and it's um culture yeah (laughs) absolutely Crow culture. Um, and uh, we uh, are just uh, coming to the uh, very close to the end of the show. We've got uh, John Ford with us. Hi, John. Hello. Good to... You want to open up number four? Oh, yeah, there, there go. we How are. Good. Yeah, see, I call himself a scientist, you see. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You're there. Nice to have you with us. We uh, uh, 
I've just got a couple of stories, or rather one quick story that I didn't want to um, uh, go without mentioning, because it, but it's all over the news, is that uh, there's a conference on in Bonn. Uh, it's a world summit on uh, climate change. And uh, it turns out that uh, global emissions of CO2 uh, apparently have been flat. In other words, they, they're high, but they haven't increased in their... Uh, haven't increased for the uh, last four years uh, but uh, experts are predicting that there'll be a rise largely uh, because of uh, activity in uh, China so there'll be quite a bit of political fallout uh, yeah. about that but it's very very urgent that something is done to rein sure this in sure is I, d- I spotted as well that uh, Donald Trump's America is the only country now that isn't signed up to the Paris Accord yes um, Nicaragua was one of the outliers that interestingly they didn't want to sign up initially dug their hills in because they didn't think it was strong enough it wasn't doing enough to look after the smaller uh, countries and uh, the, o- the other one which was so it wasn't because they objected to uh uh, the whole principle no. right? they, they thought it wasn't doing enough not, not, not in the right enough. way and uh, Syria which is a, a rogue nation in its own right really with it, when it comes to these things anyway Syria's now signed up and Nicaragua has <laughs> signed up it's just Donald Trump's America yes um, well uh, huge numbers of people of course in in the United States who completely uh, uh, are against that point of view quite but uh, there we go uh uh, just one other thing which uh, may interest you, Andrew. Oh, uh, yeah. 60 years to the day, this is, I'm treading on John Ford territory here. 60 years to the day Britain launched its first Skylark record, uh, rocket. Uh, yeah. That was um, that was that was a lovely, lovely rocket, a lovely part in in the UK space history, actually, and the forerunner to everything we do today. Uh, there's an article on the BBC about that. It, it's well worth having a look at. Skylark. Okay. Uh, but we've got John. We've got John. We've got John, who knows what happened I, because he's so old. Everybody, <laughs> he I, is I so old. I haven't got that one though. Oh. oh no, I haven't got that one. I have got these though. Um, 1841. James Braid. Familiar to anyone? No. no. He, he saw the first demonstration of animal magnetism, which led to his study uh, of the subject he eventually called, what do you think? Animal magnetism? No, no, no. Hypnosis. Oh, hypnosis. Oh, hypnosis. Really? Yeah, he invented hypnosis. Uh, oh. 1913, the first modern elastic, what do you think, was patented by Mary Phelps Jacob? Uh, elastic band. Nope. Uh, Bungee cord. Nope. When, when was it? Uh, 1913. Oh, 1930. Pants. Yeah. Oh, close. Waistband. Close. Um, yeah. About a foot higher. <laughs> two foot higher, depending uh, on how old they are. Hats. Um, no, elast- elastic bra. Oh, ah, okay. elastic very good. Bra. <laughs> uh, 1980, the US spacecraft Voyager 1 sent back the first close-up pictures of Saturn on oh, this yeah. day. Uh, 1971, Mariner 9, the first man-made object uh, to Go orbit which planet? Mercury? Uh, nope. Um, Mars. Oh, Mars. Oh, yes. Of yeah, yeah. It was yeah. the first one to uh, to make photographs. I say, of 70% course, of the surface. Yeah. And this is interesting. As a trained mechanical engineer myself, in 1855, there was a proposal for a tunnel under the English Channel. Um, and it was reported in the New York Daily Times. Now, bear in mind, this is 1855. And according to the French engineer, Monsieur Leopold Favre, uh, it would, in five years, 
actually happened a bit later than yeah, that, yeah. Connect, Boulogne uh, and Dover. But he got it actually factually right, the depth and the, the length and where it would emerge both ends and so there's a whole, uh, I won't go into it because we haven't got time, but he actually got it right, 82 feet under the surface of the seabed as wow. well. I wonder this if was in been, 1855. I wonder if they'd been yeah. able to do it in those days. I mean, I mean, you know, the calculations are one thing, but actually being able to build that tunnel. Um, I mean, yeah, well, back in 1855, we weren't part of the European Union, of course. <laughs> So yes. That wasn't going to happen, was it? They was weren't it? working the other way. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, there were people we didn't want to be coming. Well, I don't think we should go there. Well, I'll wind up your colleague. <laughs> let's not do it. <laughs> no, let's not do it. There you okay. Go. All right. Well, look, that's it. It's uh, uh, always uh, great to have your company uh, from Andrew and me. And John, for now, goodbye. Don't forget to join us again for another edition of Love and Science next week. Stay tuned because after the news, John Ford will be here uh, to uh, be getting Bristol home. See you next week. Love and Science.